Hey there, I'm Justin Zyduck. I'm Jim Cannon, and you're listening to The Iron Age of Comics, a critical reevaluation of comic books from about 1985 to 2000. For several decades, DC had a Wonder Woman problem. Created in 1941 by the psychologist William Moulton Marston and the artist Harry G. Peter, with substantial and uncredited input from Marston's wife Elizabeth and their girlfriend Olive Byrne, Wonder Woman was the first prominent woman superhero. Immediately popular, she was among the five superheroes to survive the collapse of the Golden Age and has been continuously published in her own title throughout DC's history. But unlike her contemporaries Superman and Batman, Wonder Woman has had an uneven and somewhat rocky creative history. As it turns out, one of the reasons Wonder Woman has remained in publication is that unless DC continues to do so, the rights to her revert back to the creators or their estate. For many decades, decades, <laughs> the Warman book was one that was assigned, and as a consequence, a lot of the people involved, pretty much always men, didn't quite know what to do with her or her supporting cast. In the Silver Age, there's a lot of cribbing from the Superman mythos, with adventures of Wonder Girl and Wonder Tot, clear parallels of Superboy and, I guess, Super Baby. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Some strange love triangle stories involving a teen Diana a mer-boy, and a bird-boy, <laughs> a period when she lost all of her superpowers and learned kung fu, and other strangeness. In the Bronze Age, her long-suffering love interest Steve Trevor died, came back, and died again. But in 1986, the crisis on Infinite Earths wiped the slate clean and set the stage for a reinvention of Wonder Woman alongside Batman and Superman and the rest of the DC Universe. According to a 2019 interview with George Perez, DC's plans were not that great. In fact, per Perez's account, the plans were pretty sexist, which is saying something for an industry that has always been focused on the male gaze. This spurred George to step forward and perhaps for the first time since Marston himself volunteer to chart the course of Wonder Woman's life, adventures, and legacy. What we got was every bit as revolutionary as Man of Steel or Batman Year One, what amounted to a complete reinvention of the character and her associated Mythos. So we are covering Wonder Woman Gods and Mortals, which was the first arc of the Perez series, covering the first seven issues of the title. Mm. Justin, what was your first encounter with George Perez's Wonder Woman run? So I had actually read the first issue of this uh, as a back issue. I'm pretty sure that Wonder Woman number one was a wizard recommendation. (laughs) I uh, might not have actively sought it out, but it was probably the case that, you know, I saw it in the back issue bin or whatever when I was going through it. And I uh, remember seeing it as a staff pick in the magazine. Like I said in our episode on Wizard, they had a lot of pull on my uh, impressionable comic buying habits when I was reading it. But this is my first time actually reading the rest of the Paris Runner or, or any of it, really. Um, I won't keep you in suspense. I really like this. Uh, whenever you dip into a celebrated run like this, after the fact, there's always the concern that it might be... A disappointment because it's been built up too much or it hasn't aged well or it's kind of a you had to be there kind of thing and you're intruding on somebody else's you know sense of nostalgia um but no this is great and i'm really looking forward to talking about it cool me too 
But um, to my chagrin, this is actually the first time I've ever read it also. Uh, when I was growing up, despite the fact that the Linda Carter TV show was appointment viewing every week, I was pretty much under the impression that Wonder Woman comics were quote-unquote girl comics. So I steered clear. And this is dumb on multiple levels. <laughs> but I was never a particularly empathic or understanding child. I've always been a mythology nerd, though, so this stuff should have been catnip for me, but I never touched it. I did uh, eventually come to my senses, and I have other Wonder Woman runs, but for whatever reason, and I will plead uh, time and money, um, I never went back and, and got the Perez material. So this podcast was essentially the impetus to do so, and now having read it, on the one hand, I'm kicking myself for waiting so long, <laughs> but also patting myself on the back for finally pulling the trigger. So that's a complicated physical movement. <laughs> um, yeah, this is this is good, really good. It's not perfect, but it's really really good. And and each issue I think improves on the previous one. Mm -hmm. And I will you know shamefully also co-sign my name to being kind of leery about reading a Wonder Woman comic when I was younger. Um, I did buy the first issue, like I said, and I enjoyed it at the time. But, you know, I didn't go back and fill out the rest of the run that the way that I did for a lot of other comics from this time. And some of that is also just time and money, like you said. But, you know, surely some part of me, right, went uh, with the guy behind the counter at the comic book store or my uh, my schoolyard chums. You know, what would they think <laughs> about me buying a comic book starring, you know, a female protagonist, right? So um, I'm, 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 I'm growing as a person doing this podcast, certainly. I'm, I'm struggling to imagine um, schoolyard chums who wouldn't take your lunch money for reading comics in the first place. But Yeah. But anyway, we, we grew up in a very different time, I think, than the, the present when people's primary engagement with superheroes is in comic books anyway. But I don't think you'd, you'd get picked on quite as much for reading comics. No. Because manga's cool. Everybody loves right. manga. <laughs> so anyway, moving on. Um, and I, again, I'm getting a lot of my information from an um, interview with George Perez um, from 2019 conducted by, by Dan Greenfield. Uh, transcript of which is available on, on the 13th Dimension website. But um, 1986, Perez went to Janice Race, who the then Wonder Woman editor, with a proposal for the character. Perez had one ready to go, but he initially shelved it when the crisis devolved Diana into clay. He thought it, w it wouldn't work, whatever he had come up with. But seeing the direction that DC was going to go in, uh, Perez decided to step up and, and give it a go anyway. He said that he was inspired by what Walt Simonson was doing in Thor in the films of Ray Harryhausen. And Perez's big idea was basically to go back to Greek mythology and, and really lean into the fantasy elements of the character. Which makes a staggering amount of sense, and it's surprising that this wasn't the case from day one. But Wonder Woman has always been this strange mix of myth, military fiction, romance, and sci-fi, and perhaps that's part of what made her difficult to write about. But anyway, Perez boiled most of that away. He, he did keep aspects of the military fiction, and he emphasized the mythology, which he already had plenty of experience with, drawing DC's Greek and Roman gods thanks to Wonder Girl and the Titans books. Mm. Even in the Golden Age, Wonder Woman was kind of a hodgepodge of mythological influences, a sort of mix of, of classical Greece and Rome, which 
actually are quite different despite having superficial similarities. Perez simplified things and went 100% Greek, which is why Wonder Woman faces off against Ares when Golden Age Wonder Woman fought Mars. It makes a lot of sense when you uh, say that he was uh, inspired by Ray Harryhausen movies because that was on my mind even before finding out <laughs> that it was an influence because I'm um, reading the bits in here with like the Pantheon of Gods. It does sort of feel like, you know, and Lawrence Olivier as Zeus. <laughs> like, there would, <laughs> right. It would definitely be, 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 a, be a star-studded cast for that for that part. Yeah, and all the weird skeleton monsters and stuff, very much mm-hmm. thinking stop-motion animation for most of these things. <laughs> yeah. So Wonder Woman relaunched in February of 1987 with a brand new double-sized number one, credited George Perez on pencils and plot with co-plotter and scripter Greg Potter. Although Potter would be gone by the third issue, replaced by Len Wein, who is credited solely as scripter. DC or Perez made the extraordinary decision to have Wonder Woman appear for the first time in the present, rather than setting the book in the nebulous 10 years ago, utilized by Man of Steel or Batman Year One. This has some far-ranging and occasionally bizarre repercussions continuity-wise, and one wonders how well thought out this idea was at the time. And yet, Hawkman gets all the flack. This is uh, more of your constant apology for Hawkman in his post-crisis continuity. <laughs> we will get to Hawk. We, it's on the uh, the spreadsheet now to get to, to Hawk World one of these days. <laughs> so, yeah. yeah. That bill's coming due. And then we will never speak of it again, right? right. But um, yeah, just one more bit of background before we move on. Uh, you mentioned at the top of the episode that uh, DC was obligated to keep publishing some form of regular Wonder Woman titled comic or the rights would re- would revert. Uh, between the cancellation of the previous Wonder Woman series and the launch of this one, uh, DC released a miniseries called The Legend of Wonder Woman, which was uh, apparently sort of a continuity insert story and a send-off to the, uh, the pre-crisis Wonder Woman and a tribute to the Golden Age version uh, specifically. And that was drawn by famous underground comics artist Trina Robbins, which astonishingly makes her, I believe, the first female artist ever to work on like a regular or quote-unquote regular Wonder Woman comic. Bizarre. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, and written by Kurt Busiek. Last episode, we were just talking about Kurt Busiek being kind of a, a journeyman writer, and that's his words, um, at the time before becoming a name with Marvels. And like this is the sort of thing that he would get pulled in to do because uh, Busiek claims... Uh, this is on a, a, a Twitter thread that this was published purely to fill that gap between series and meet that continuous publication clause, but they didn't want to distract from the upcoming, you know, superstar Perez relaunch. So it was given this sort of unorthodox creative team and essentially designed to be ignored because they didn't want to, you know, steal any thunder. So like to the point that this was titled the legend of Wonder Woman so that it would be in the L section of, you know, of your, of your alphabetized comic rack or your, you know, your amazing heroes, uh, previews, <laughs> um, instead of in the, the normal W position. I distinctly remember seeing this on the stands and not understanding its purpose at the time. Mm-hmm. Uh, Trina Robbins was deliberately doing an homage to the golden age style of, of Harry Peter, which is what you would expect from Trina Robbins naturally. But I just, I didn't have the ability to appreciate it then. Now that I'm reminded of its existence, I'm curious to see if it's worth checking out, even if it's not, you know, in continuity. Not that that has ever actually mattered. Yeah. Apparently it was like Amazing Heroes, I think, 
named it like one of the top 10 books of the year when it came out. Hmm. And that was like 1986. So like that's pretty hard to do, which I guess <laughs> one of the top 10 books in, in 86, you know, the fabled 86 years. So um, yeah, definitely right. something to, to look out for in the future. Um, but I just, I just bring this up because that's some, you know, some fun trivia, um, a little bit of follow-up about a creator that we just recently talked about in our last episode, um, reinforcing that Wonder Woman tended to be kind of an assignment that people just got handed to do. And a reminder that DC didn't just like flip a switch in 1986 and say, it's post-crisis now, right? We have all this, all this uh, figured out. There was a lot of weird transitional stuff going on. And as alluded to earlier, a lot of creative decisions, I don't think everyone fully understood what was going on. Mm-hmm. <laughs> they just kind of made a lot of stuff up as they went, but somehow it all worked out. Yeah. E- except for Hawkman. <laughs> <laughs> so like any of these reboots, the the first seven issues of the new Wonder Woman title spends a, a lot of time and space setting everything up. There's an, a, an awful lot of characters, action, history, and magic jammed into these pages. We get in no particular order. The origin of the Amazons, the state of the Olympian pantheon, the birth and young adulthood of Princess Diana, the first child born to the Amazons, the Great Contest, her arrival in Man's World, the heroism in action that earns her the moniker Wonder Woman. We get Vietnam veteran Steve Trevor, Etta Candy, and the capitalist family Julian Vanessa, Ares, his kids Phobos and Deimos, and an elaborate plot to cause World War III and the extinction of humanity. Military intrigue, monsters, <laughs> gods, action, adventure, and a hero willing and able to use lethal force. Oh my gosh, <laughs> it's got everything, right? It's uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's it, it's very dense. You know, I mean that in a in a good way. Like I read this over mm-hmm. a couple of sittings, and um, I don't think that I could have shotgunned this if I wanted to. Right, so you'd definitely get your money's worth reading this one. Yeah, I I took me um, several sit downs to do it too, and I, I think part of it is you just kind of linger over the art and the composition, and you know, yeah, before you know it, it's it's time to make dinner, and you got to put the book <laughs> down or something. So hitting over some of these topics, let's start with the Amazons, as Perez does, and they they kind of form the backbone of this whole thing. Mm-hmm. So let's talk about that for a little bit. And, and I'm afraid I'm going to have to do some lecturing, <laughs> some, some college lecturing. So Amazons, as a concept, come to us from Greek mythology, obviously. Um, but they were actually a historical phenomenon. Uh, a few years ago, I read Adrian Mayor's book, appropriately entitled The Amazons, where she explored the myth and, and gotcha the history. When the Greeks began to colonize the coast of the Black Sea, they encountered a people known as the Scythians, a rowdy bunch of steppe nomads, horse-riding archers that the Greeks considered barbarians. The Scythians left elaborate burial mounds called Kurgans. These have been excavated for nearly two centuries by archaeologists, and there's ample evidence that a number of the figures buried with full warrior panoply and accoutrements were women. As a side note, the Scythians, of course, had their own gods, but since they never wrote anything down, and we didn't know stuff about them because Greek writers recorded anything, uh, their gods got equated to Greek gods. What's interesting, to me at least, is that the primary goddess they worshipped was called by the Greeks Aphrodite Urania, literally heavenly Aphrodite, the aspect of the goddess of love that is more about general love than physical love. 
And in a weird coincidence, William Marston made Aphrodite the patron goddess of the Amazons because the Amazons' primary responsibility was to spread love in the general sense. <laughs> <laughs> the Urania sense. And yet I don't think that's what Marston was thinking of when he or his co-creators <laughs> made that decision. Just just one of those neat coincidences. Mm-hmm. As a side note to a side note, the Scythian priesthood was composed of transgender individuals. Just a reminder that transgender folks have been part of the fabric of humanity forever. Hmm. Um, incidentally, and I, I swear I, I will get back on topic soon. Um, <laughs> well, I, I'm learning things. This is this is this yeah, is good. Yeah, I know. Usually, usually I just learn about Spawn or something. So this. Is... <laughs> <laughs> Anyhow, um, so I assume Greg Rucka read that Mayor book that I did because both his Rebirth Run on Wonder Woman and his book The Old Guard makes use of a lot of this same information. Uh, vis-a-vis hmm. Scythians and, and Amazons. So there's historical and archaeological evidence for the existence of Amazons, but more importantly, they are characters in Greek mythology. And I think it's important to note here, though, that the Amazons were always couched as the other and as the enemy. The myths recount time and again some hero or other contesting against the Amazons, maybe falling in love with one, but ultimately having to fight and kill her. There's a whole myth called the uh, Amazonomachy, which literally means war with the Amazons, about Athens fighting them and, and barely surviving. We also get Heracles or Theseus encountering them, Amazon units appearing in the Trojan War, and an awful lot of Amazons depicted in ancient Greek art. There's an interesting bit about this uh, otherization in the first issue. Um, it's a long series of captions, so I won't read the whole thing, but it basically says that like in ancient times, poets tell these tales about how great the Amazons are, how society works, which makes the rulers of Greece and specifically, you know, like kings, right? Like male rulers, uh, jealous and angry. So they get the poets to make up lies about Amazons committing all these atrocities. So there's this uh, idea, even in, you know, even in this series about this sort of um, politically motivated slander. And one thing that ancient mythology shares with modern comics is the retcon. For example, did you know that Heracles originally only had 10 labors? But nobody could actually agree on which ones were official? <laughs> you know, what, which ones were in continuity? <laughs> so the Greeks expanded the list to include the 12 most popular ones. Um, the idea of the ancient Greeks retconning the exploits of the Amazons, again, has historical precedence. Well. Uh, even classical antiquity had its Jeff Johns's, I, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> Jeffius Johnius, maybe? <laughs> I don't know. Um, so also in classical mythology, as an, an ironic twist, the Amazons are daughters of Ares. Whether that is literal, literal or figurative is anyone's guess. I think, like for Impolita and Antiope, it was meant literally. But I think it's worth noting, given how DC's Amazons and Wonder Woman in particular operate in opposition to Ares. Mm-hmm. And you know, another side note, because <laughs> I like doing that apparently. Um, the Mar- Marvel version of Hippolyta is explicitly the daughter of Ares and, uh, and is thus usually a villain because uh, their Hercules is, after all, a-, a hero. But for a short while, Hippolyta did join that fearless defenders team run by Valkyrie as... Warrior woman, <laughs> WW. So uh, again, let it not be said that the House of Ideas knows when to steal a good idea. Hmm. Um, the Amazons are deeply entrenched in Greek mythology, and it makes all the sense in the world for Perez to make them essentially Greek. Their homeland, Themyscira, a name that comes straight out of 
Herodotus, I'm pretty sure, is much more authentic and evocative than Paradise Island. Uh, looks like a Greek city-state with temples and an Acropolis. Everyone wears tunics and flowing Greek-style robes, etc., etc. Mm-hmm. Even if the the actual Amazons or Scythians were as high horse riders were were big fans of pants and uh, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> primarily nomadic. So it was Greg Potter's idea to reimagine the Amazons as a created people fashioned by the Olympian gods out of the souls of women who had been murdered through domestic violence. This is pretty serious stuff for what is ostensibly a kid's comic book. Mm-hmm. Uh, provides a modern perspective on a subject that even in the classical world was primarily about tough, sexy warrior ladies. <laughs> And right away we're reminded, oh, oh yeah, the patriarchy is awful and has been even going back to caveman times. Yeah. Uh, this is a pretty uh, provocative sequence that opens up the run. Um, so the deal is that there's this hunter in you know 30,000 BC who loses his hand to a saber-toothed tiger. So um, this is explicitly called out as making him feel like less of a man because he can't hunt anymore with one hand. And he takes out his frustration by killing his mate or whatever you call that anthropological arrangement at the time. Um, but it's written in second person. So it's like the captions go like, when she touches you, you curse her. You try to ignore her, but her whimpering taunts you, teases you, emasculates you, makes you snap. Um, so whether it's intentional or not, and I, you know, I, I couldn't say, but it weirdly sort of implicates the reader in an interesting way because like that reader, you know, just demographically is probably a young you know, male, right? So it's, you know, it's it, it's sort of also saying like this sort of thing happens, you know, still, right? Like, I mean, like you say, it's, it's sort of framed as like, even though it's caveman times, it's framed as like the equivalent of a modern domestic violence situation. So it's, um, yeah, yeah, it's, it's, it's really, it was a very, very striking way to, to open that up. And basically every Amazon is, is a reincarnation of a, another woman similarly murdered by her partner. So this is, this is heavy stuff. It's yeah. very thought-provoking, or at least it should be. Our main character doesn't actually show up until page 25 of this 32-page first issue. <laughs> what do you think of that? There's a lot of prologue to get through. And what do you think of her when we do get to her? So, yeah, I did enjoy number one uh, when I first read it. But it is a first issue composed entirely or almost entirely of what we would think of as backstory or exposition, depicting key moments in strict chronology. So like Wonder Woman is in costume, ready to start the series only on that last page or so, um, which is a lot like how John Byrne's Man of Steel number one actually plays out or the first you know hour or whatever, the first uh, Richard Donner Superman movie. You know how that goes, like Krypton, time skip, Kansas, time skip. Now he's Superman, right? <laughs> so like the movie and Man of Steel sort of have that, that same structure, but Wonder Woman number one takes place over thousands of years and uh, covers a lot more ground. So it's a bit like watching a documentary that's heavy on the reenactments. And like, I, you know, I like that. <laughs> the history channel presents. Yeah. <laughs> <Wonder Woman. laughs> exactly. And like, you know, like I like that sort of thing and I like that sort of thing in my, in my comics and stuff, but I don't know how the new 52 version of wonder woman or rebirth or even uh, Grant Morrison's earth one that I haven't read handled the wonder woman origin. And maybe you'll have, uh, more insight on this, Jim. But I do feel like today, for a reader who is more contemporary and more used to, you know, sort of movie television style storytelling and not 
somebody like me who just likes to read a big, you know, expositional thing, I feel like you'd probably get to Wonder Woman herself a lot sooner. Like maybe you do a couple of pages of montage info dump at the top and then be ready to go. Or you'd start out with Steve Trevor coming to Themyscira or even, you know, Diana meeting Julia Capitellis out in Boston like she does in this series and use that character as an excuse to sort of transmit exposition and dialogue or some you know, some combination of that rather than just like spending an entire issue getting that backstory. Yeah, I, both Azarello and Rucka start right away with Warnerman and New 52 and Rebirth, respectively. I have yet to go near an Earth-1 book of any kind, to be honest. Um, but I assume probably the same rules mm. apply. Rucka did something in- interesting because Rebirth was doing that publishing two books a month thing. Right. So one issue would be the current adventures of Wonder Woman and then the second issue would be the origin so you'd you'd flip and the origin backstory stuff would provide context for what was going on in the present it worked really well but when it came time to publish them in trade they just put each part of the story together by itself which i think i don't know if it worked hmm. i mean i don't know how well that worked i didn't experience it that way i, I did it you know month to month but yeah, I, I agree. I think it works well in the trade, I think, because you have a big chunk of story anyway to get to, so that having Wonder Woman appear on the last page, well, you can immediately turn to the next one and things are happening. But I got to imagine how it worked in February of 1987. <laughs> you get through, all, like like you said, thousands of years of reenactments and Hercules looking a, an awful lot like Marvel Hercules <laughs> with the headband and everything. And then only to get to the end to finally see the the character you you bought the book to to see that's been weird i don't know yeah, i mean that's i mean that's that's how i experienced it right and i was like yeah okay like i <laughs> I, I get it and like i on some level like i appreciate not having like a cliffhanger that i don't have the second part of or you know or whatever so i'm like okay that was a complete story and but yeah i mean you buy a wonder woman comic and it doesn't have a whole lot of wonder <laughs> woman in it and and to be sure, the whole origin of the Amazons is, is so epic. And then when we get to Diana, it, it just kind of rushes through her birth, her training, the contest, bullets and bracelets. We don't really get a sense of her as a character until maybe the fourth issue, which is Perez's second issue as sole plotter and where she has her battle with Decay. I don't know if that is part of it or not. Mm-hmm. But there's a, there's a lot of table setting. And unfortunately, the main character takes a definite backseat for like, half of the story yeah and there's the uh the further impediment that diana doesn't speak english when she first uh arrives in america she speaks some sort of you know uh whatever they speak on the mascara right uh she's implied to be speaking some form of ancient greek or something and then she learns uh, english quick and we get thought balloons so we we do have and we do have some characters who actually know enough greek to be able to sort of make out what she's saying um but we don't get a lot of character through dialogue at first and, you know, in that modern sort of TV movie screenwritery way. Mm. Um, and I, so I'm, I'm totally ignorant of the answer on this, but like would a contemporary Greek speaker understand ancient Greek well enough to get by? Cause I mean, it's not the, the implication is that it's like, Oh, we're ha- struggling a bit, but we're sort of basically getting, you know, connecting or whatever. Or is it like old English where you pick up, you know, you read Beowulf, you only get like the occasional word that you actually recognize untranslated <laughs> yeah um i i did look this up actually but um uh, 
my understanding is that, is that ancient Greek and modern Greek are cognate languages. Hmm. So there are differences in pronunciation and such, but they are more closely related than, say, French and Latin. Julia Capitalis is explicitly an archaeologist and classicist, so she is probably more aware of the differences between the two languages than even a, a contemporary Greek speaker would be and can correct for the changes. And again, um, I'm assuming that Diana would probably be speaking some kind of Scythian anyway, but that's just me being a pedantic jerk as usual. <laughs> but um, Julia does say something like you know, she's saying some kind of gibberish and and she can't quite follow what Diana is saying until she kind of slows down. So mm-hmm. so maybe maybe she isn't speaking strictly ancient Greek, but some kind of patois mixed with steppe languages or something. I, I don't know. But being a superhero with all kinds of, of gifts, she, yeah, she she does pick up English in a matter of hours or days. Yeah. Yeah. Sure. I mean, it's, 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 yeah. yeah, it's certainly like a pretty quick ride to uh, to fluency, but. But um, when Dinah finally does step up, she's pretty much fully formed, the, the Wonder Woman we expect. She's tough, she's capable, she's compassionate, and yet also willing to just decapitate a dude because there's no other choice, <laughs> which is a strong contrast to the other members of the, the so-called Trinity. We, we've talked about the code against killing in another podcast and the reasons why people like Superman and Batman do not kill and why someone like Diana would Although it's hard to tell if you can actually kill someone who is literally immortal the way Greek gods are. Yeah, I wasn't sure if um, so that scene where she decapitates uh, one of Ares' sons, I wasn't sure if that was to say that like she's from a warrior culture, she's prepared to do this, or if it's just in comics how you know you can kill a monster or a vampire or a robot, and it doesn't necessarily count against your you know your <laughs> your strict morality count there. I think originally, yeah, that was the whole thing that, like, Dina would use lethal force against your, your Minotaurs and your Gorgons and your Cyclopes and and what have you. But of course, Demos does come back because you know everybody comes back eventually. Hmm. I think, but it just kind of makes a little bit more sense when a being who is explicitly immortal explains away deadly injuries with the classic "I got better." <laughs> yeah. Characterization-wise, uh, Diana is picked as an outsider, but not like naive or childlike. You know, like there's there's a bit where they somehow have a gun on Themyscira and they call it the the flashing thunder, and she does do like to be fair the whole like what is this great metal bird that you call an airplane, right? <laughs> um, but like, like some kind of unfrozen caveman lawyer. <laughs> right? Yeah, but there's but there's not like a whole lot of the fish out of water hijinks or you know. Her being, you know, totally flabbergasted in, in, you know, embarrassing situations or whatever by our our modern world. It's a lot of like sort of commenting on how backwards our way of life uh, looks to her and how sitting in traffic doesn't seem like a thing that we should put up with in our yeah. in our modern society. With even without purple rays and giant kangaroos to ride around, then the Amazons are presented as a as a more advanced society, mm-hmm. at least culturally. So the, the modern version of Wonder Woman is, is simply a daughter of Zeus, essentially the same origin as Hercules, and I, I can't help but find that so dull and boring compared to the origin presented in, in this book, which is essentially the original one. Now, the the new origin may essentially double down on the Ray Harryhausen, but I, I think it loses a lot. Here, Dinah is fashioned from clay by Hippolyta and given life by five Greek goddesses, 
plus Hermes, who I, I think is there primarily to justify Wonder Woman being able to fly. And barring Hermes, who I don't think was present in the Golden Age, this is a lady superhero who has no men involved in her background at all. She's, she's willed into existence by a cohort of women, which I think emphasizes her initial feminist message and makes her unique not just in comics but i think in literature period (laughs) Mm -hmm. yeah i mean you know again i don't read a whole lot of the contemporary comics so this is not a new comics are no good but like daughter of zeus does seem a little disappointingly literal and mundane and um actually like less magical like literally right Uh, that it's just sort of like, because if it's that, if it's just, it's just sort of like I inherited superpowers from my parents, you know, like it's almost like a genetic thing or whatever the the God version of genetics is. <laughs> Instead of being something like truly strange and singular, because like in this book, it's clearly that like even amongst the gods and, you know, Amazons and people who have seen some supernatural stuff, like Diana is something unique and different and uh, strange, right? Yeah. And there's something like that's very resonant or resonant seeming that Diana is the uh, unborn daughter of that first uh, pregnant prehistoric woman who was killed. Um, someone whose potential was taken away, you know, unwillingly, like imposed by a masculine aggressor, right? And so, like, mm-hmm. her existence is sort of posited as this sort of um, corrective balance in that. Yeah, there's there's a lot going on yeah. there that is just completely absent from. Um, Zeus and Hippolyta had a baby. Right. <laughs> and I think, yeah, it's it's a shame that that was, was thrown out. Just to, maybe to simplify things, I guess. It's certainly probably easier to swallow in the, the film that, like, boom, that's an origin everybody can understand. It's less, like you said, magical. Yeah. Um, but whatever. We're grumpy grognards <laughs> who like our old comics. Um <clears throat> A lot of that aforementioned table setting is explaining Ares' plot to foment World War III. Uh, but it also introduces <laughs> Steve Trevor, who is the traditional love interest for Adania. But here he is presented as a middle-aged Vietnam vet, perhaps age-appropriate to date an 18-year-old Amazon according to Hollywood standards, but clearly not intended to do so within the narrative structure of this book. What do you think of this version of Steve Trevor and why do you think Perez or, or Potter decided to introduce the character in this way? Yeah, so I was pretty surprised to see him. From what I read of the post-crisis uh, Wonder Woman comics, I hadn't really encountered him. So I didn't. I don't know if he gets written out or whatever happens down the line. Um, maybe we'll find out. But uh, yeah, I, I wonder if Perez or Potter were sort of looking at like, the optics of you know, the sort of feminist icon superhero falling in love instantly with the, the first man that she ever sees, right? If that's um, something they were thinking about and, you know, like maybe just aging him up a bit signals that they're going in a different direction. Whatever the reason, like I like the effect that we can have a male-female relationship in comics that isn't purely driven by romantic tensions. And um, in this arc, at least, Diana and Steve are both on a mission and they don't really even have time for that kind of getting to know you kind of romantic thing uh, like in the movie. I think part of this comes back to why Steve was killed off in the late silver, early bronze age or, or whatever, this idea that having a male damsel in distress didn't work. Hmm. Like it's okay for Superman to save Lois all the time. She's, she's just a girl, <laughs> but Wonder Woman to have to save Steve Trevor all the time. Uh, that's emasculating by gum. <laughs> um, 
So I think a lot of writers didn't know what to do with Steve, so they got rid of him. Mm-hmm. And I think Perez or Potter set it up so that there's a way to have that character around, but not have to incorporate him in, the, in that romantic way so that you you could have a yeah a, pl- a platonic relationship and he could just be a regular supporting cast member. Mm-hmm. I I do quite like the current version of Steve, who's a, he's a Navy SEAL and quite capable, but also obviously not a superhero. Uh, Greg Rucka made great use of him. Wilson less so, and then I checked out, so I actually don't even know if Trevor is still a supporting character in the current <laughs> title or not. I like to think so. He, I, I too liked him in the movies, and I think having a human love interest helps ground these godly characters like Wonder Woman or Superman. Mm-hmm. And I, yeah, and I did like really like their romance in the in that first movie. So I don't object to it on principle or anything. I just thought it was like refreshing that they weren't obligated to you know repeat that here necessarily. Um, but yeah, I like this version of Steve that he is depicted as um, I guess sort of like as a parallel to Diana, he is a warrior like trained in he's a you know a you know fighter pilot but he's a warrior with a conscience and it's it's mentioned in the in the, during his introduction that he I, I believe he testifies like a senate subcommittee hearing about and it, it's that's left vague exactly what he testified about but just sort of a uh, an impropriety or you know maybe some reckless doings on the part of his superiors so well, his superior on that issue calls him out as being like you know like a, a bleeding heart who has no yeah. Uh, part, part in this army, right? So, like, it's because this issue will, like, critique the ways of war or whatever to to show that, like, you can have a person who is trained and capable, whatever you want to call that, right, of martial action. But yeah. also, like, sort of, like, the, the discipline not to use that as a crutch or use that um, irresponsibly. Yeah, like, like, Wonder Woman is described as a warrior for peace kind of thing. And I think that is exactly what, what Steve has set up to be as well and i think maybe that's why they mesh so well Mm -hmm. as we said earlier george perez decided to really focus upon the mythological underpinnings of wonder woman for this reboot gone are the purple rays and the venus girdles which rehabilitate evil people uh as well as the giant kangaroos got jettisoned as well that's a shame there's (laughs) yeah i know i don't know (laughs) i go back and forth um there's no Mars or Duke of Deception. Instead, we get Ares and his children, Phobos and Deimos. We get the Greek gods, Zeus, Hera, Athena, all the rest. And actually, as I said before, it surprised me to learn that this was an innovation of Perez's. The, the three primary heroes of the DC Universe encapsulate their respective genres so perfectly that I expect a woman to have done that since time immemorial. Superman has science fiction pretty much cornered. Batman is crime fiction with a pulp edge, and that that leaves Wonder Woman to do fantasy. And over at Marvel, that's Thor's job, but also because Kirby has to Kirby, and <laughs> Thor is a space Viking and, and Marvel's first Superman analog. Thor does double duty with a, a lot of science fiction mixed in with the fantasy. Yeah, Wonder Woman is straight up fantasy with gods and monsters and magic and curses and all that jazz. I think this run giving her this. Uh very distinct milieu is important in establishing this idea that DC has of the Trinity, you know, like as <laughs> a, as like, as like a storytelling concept beyond just, you know, here are our three most licensable characters, right? <laughs> just <laughs> yeah. happens to be these three, right? But like the, 
you know, positioning it this way is sort of like the reason that these three characters are a thing like within the universe of, you know, of DC comics is because they each come from like a different world or, you know, represent a different, like you say, subgenre of superhero fiction, but they all work together in contrast and complement one one another. So it's yeah, giving Wonder Woman like her own very distinct area of expertise, I think helps sell that. Agreed. Um, we get some really creepy evil gods with Ares and his kids. I don't know how prominently they may have featured in past Team Titan stories, but Ares and, and Deimos in particular are proper monsters. And we also get some unfortunate fantasy tropes, like when the much more powerful and well-informed mentor simply cannot interfere, <laughs> uh, nor are they able to answer direct questions in any helpful kind of way. This is the... The Gandalf paradox yeah. or the the Dumbledore problem or, or whatever you want to call it. Um, Hermes just prods Diana in a particular direction and she does what he says. And of course it all works out in the end, but it's still an annoying way to tell a story. It kind of sets up our hero as being ineffective at first, which is fine for some farm boy learning the ropes, but it's I think it's less acceptable for a superhero who should be leaping in and saving the day immediately. Yeah, I, I do remember um, when I got to the point where uh, Hermes was like, oh, I'll lead you to your first clue. I feel like everybody on, on Themyscira would have been like, come on, man. <laughs> you don't got time for clues. This is not yeah. This is not the seventh guest. But yeah. <laughs> but yeah, and there's also like this um, talisman that Diana gets from Ares' daughter. And it has all these, you know, properties and it's significant. And there's, you know, you hold it up to a mirror and you go in the mirror. It's, it's a whole, you know, it's a whole thing, right? <laughs> it's a Mac- MacGuffin. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. It just, it just allows the story to progress. And, you know, on the other hand, like there's plenty of like sciencey stuff in like a Fantastic Four story or whatever that doesn't really mean anything, but you're like, oh, okay, well the, you know, you have to get the cosmic control rod from Annihilus. So um, <laughs> part, part of that, part of that is just like, you know, when you're used to the more science fiction-y comic book superhero stuff and then when it's the fantasy stuff you like you tell yourself that it's different right (laughs) it's almost the same (laughs) story construction wise yeah there's probably more to say about the supporting cast and and perhaps the cold war setting of the main story and how Ares plans to blow up literally blow up the world yeah but i think we're probably getting long on time and only about halfway through and we haven't even really talked about the art yet (laughs) (laughs) yeah which is a crime because it's it's bloody george perez on pencils with bruce patterson on inks and the art is immaculate (laughs) Mm -hmm. (laughs) the panel construction is varied and interesting and serves the story it all flows naturally effectively it's busy without being cluttered and busy in a good way there's lots of detail and action uh everyone has a unique face as opposed to say I don't know, John Byrne, <laughs> pull a name out of the hat. And there's a lot of characterization through expression, clothing, and body language. Yeah, it's especially noticeable insofar as like you have, you know, Amazons who have distinct appearances besides just being, you know, women with blonde hair, women with dark hair, right? <laughs> like they all, I, su- I suppose if we're going to bring John Byrne's name into this, right? <laughs> right it is. Which I have done. Yeah, I do think that Paris has like a, a wider array of, you know, facial features because like, I mean, they, they all are like very statuesque, attractive women that he's drawing, but he draws different statuesque, you know, attractive women. 
yeah on the island and um and then even uh, that also goes for uh steve trevor who you know he's supposed to be middle-aged so he has like a receding hairline and he's got some you know wrinkles in in places but there there's more going on to how Perez draws him than just you know like I, we talked about this in a previous episode how for a lot of comic artists it's like well okay you draw a 29 year old man right and then to make him middle age you draw like two lines around his mouth and you know, a wrinkle under his <laughs> eye and you give him gray hair and it's you know great gray temples or whatever and it's like oh yeah that's a middle-aged man right <laughs> well it's yeah Hal Jordan or Reed Richards sure right. yeah but yeah there's a there's a little more uh, subtlety to uh how Steve Trevor is drawn to be like oh, okay yeah that looks that looks that looks like a, a real person that you would see and they're like the splash pages that Perez does the, the double page spreads used to great effect there's a like the first appearance of Olympus with, with um, Hermes flying in, you see this huge elaborately constructed temple system. And it's just amazing the amount of detail in there. It's just, you just want to stare at that page for a long time to try to absorb it all. And the does the character designs are great too, from the, the melting monster men that serve as Ares' shock troops, Deimos and his snake motif. Various Olympians reflecting their respective portfolios, but still essentially human in appearance, as the ancient Greeks believed them to be. And I'm I'm sorry, Cliff Chiang, you're, you're an excellent artist and very and, well, have a fantastic imagination. But Poseidon wasn't a big sea monster, and, and Hades didn't have a candle head. Um, and Ares has never looked more imposing or scary encased in his, his black armor with his baleful, red, maddened gaze. Clearly too big a challenge for Warner Wind to handle directly. And I like that Ares' helmet is sort of like even more Magneto than Magneto, you know? <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's something we talked about in like our, our X-Men number one episode is that like how cool like Jim Lee's uh, Magneto helmet is. The way that Magneto's helmet is drawn is sort of the way that you see, like, in a movie, if you have, you know, you see, like, Agamemnon or something, you would have that same sort of <laughs> shape, right? And Ares is, like, an even more extravagant, it's got even more points than Magneto, and there's it's to- <laughs> it's totally black under that. Yeah. Like I said, he's a proper monster. He's He doesn't even have a, f- a face. He's just angry red eyes and black armor. It's like the true horror of war. Mm-hmm. Um, He's pretty pretty awesome (laughs) as a villain and uh one thing that i think that i think is nice um because i i I agree with about how intricate the designs of you know the olympus and themiscira are but one thing that i think is cool is that Perez differentiates themiscira and olympus because like they are both islands with greek temples like that could be potentially just visually confusing for for the reader to distinguish which one you're on at the time uh olympus has this sort of like mc escher thing going on where you know like it's the stairs are like sort of going in a way that defies gravity and you have you have like one goddess standing upright and one goddess standing at like a 90 degree angle off the wall you know just just sort of signify that like themiscira is the sort of like mythological place of fantasy but like olympus is like another level altogether and you don't even have physics and gravity that work that work here yeah but Perez really pulled out all the stops amazing stuff and I guess it probably looks retro and old school now, and it probably is. But this kind of thing is what I grew up on, and, and Perez executes it so well. These are comics that it does actually take longer than five minutes to read, and not just because there's so much more text than in a 2023 comic, <laughs> but 
like I guess, like I keep saying, you really want to linger over the art and and admire the line work. And I, I'm going to try to articulate some art theory, um, totally untrained. So brain, brace yourselves. But like I, I feel like Perez doesn't do any cheating in the art, if you if you know what I mean. Because like there's no sense of like taking shortcuts. If two people are having a conversation, he draws you know each individual panel and not just a big one with a lot of space so that you can just fill in different word balloons over there, over their head. Like each, you know, each step in the conversation has its own uh, facial expressions. Now the image guys did take a lot of shortcuts, right? And not to totally derail our discussion of Wonder Woman by talking about the image guys, but we're, this is the Iron Age show, right? Yep. Uh, but here's my theory is that I think that the shortcuts are part of what's attractive about some of the image stuff. So like you have, Todd McFarlane's like very tall vertical panels where you get a little bit of background, right? So you don't have to draw like the whole thing, and you but you get a sense of like what's supposed to be happening. You have Rob Liefeld's extreme poses and crazy guns, like in, in lieu of backgrounds, right? You have Jim Lee's extreme close-ups, <laughs> like all this stuff is really eye-catching. But I think that it also does save you time drawing, or at least you there are things that you don't want to draw that you sort of focus on the other things away from those. Uh, we mentioned in our episode about Green Lantern, Emerald Dawn, M.D. Bright as an artist who's really good and like technically competent and also doesn't take shortcuts, right? So like a great artist, but like not a, a flashy one that gets a lot of attention in this uh, Iron Age period. But Perez definitely like stays relevant throughout this period, even though his career started several decades earlier. So like, I think what makes him go back around to flashy and keeps him competitive with the image guys in this time period is that like the level of hyper detail that he packs into these things of like not drawing five characters on the cover when you could, you know, draw 12. Right. Uh, so yeah, but it is, it is very time consuming what Perez does clearly. And I, I understand that he had a lot of deadline trouble in the nineties. Tom Brivort said about hiring, George Perez to do that Avengers run with Kurt Busiek. Like, oh, I'm going to have George Perez do Avengers number one. And he said that people said to him, oh, great. Who's going to do issue two? Yeah. He couldn't finish um, Infinity Gauntlet, right. for example. Yeah. Um, and then even in that Avengers run, there were a couple uh, fill-in issues from Jerry Ordway. Um, but that did allow him to come back and keep producing comics. So, I mean... I'd rather wait <laughs> personally, but uh, that maybe that's just me. But I mean, looking at at the art and this and these issues, when George Perez draws a bookcase, it, it's not just a bunch of vertical lines indicating books like they're stacked differently. Yeah, <laughs> like that's the level of detail we're talking about. It's just amazing. I I love this stuff. Yeah, I want to. I want to again. I want to hang out in that library because it looks yeah. very, very inviting in its whole three-dimensional space, you know? Yeah. Uh, I wanted to ask, what did you think about the ending uh, on here? Because I was really fascinated by the way that Wonder Woman ultimately defeats Ares. So there is like a fight, as you'd expect, but ultimately it's not decided by who is the best fighter or, you know, the hero finds the will to push herself just a little bit harder and, you know, to get that little extra burst of power at the end. Because that's like sort of everybody's least favorite part of that first Patty Jenkins movie that I think we all pretty well like otherwise right that big cg brawl at the end yeah I, but uh, you know honestly what did you expect from a superhero blockbuster movie <laughs> and then 
When Dinah uses her ability to outthink, outtalk, and outcompassion Max Lord in the second one, and, and people still didn't like that either. So, I mean, what do you I, want I, from a Wonder Woman movie, people? I'm a comics fan. I never have. To, I never have to. I never have to be reasonable or want, <laughs> want things that I can actually have, right? But yeah, so in this in this comic, Diana snares Ares with the the lasso of truth, and it sort of imparts to him a vision of what will happen if his plan succeeds. So like if he does cause World War Three, he foresees that like the you know the extinction of humanity essentially, right? Mm-hmm. That long term, right? Like that's there's a you know a blaze of glory, but long term that actually leaves there nobody on Earth to actually worship Ares like he wants. So. It's interesting that Wonder Woman doesn't actually defeat Ares with pure violence, but with with knowledge. Like she allows him the insight to realize that his plan is ultimately self defeating. I think this is another key difference between Wonder Woman and her her fellow Trinity members. Like Superman will let you exhaust yourself attacking him and then talk you down. Batman will break you in half and throw you in prison. And Wonder Woman will try to understand where you're coming from. And talk you out of what you're doing through understanding and compassion. Unless, you know, she has to decapitate you. (laughs) Um, But in this instance, Ares is too powerful for her to fight directly. So she uses the lasso to make him see reason. It's the most powerful tool in her arsenal. And it's enough to give a god pause and, and ultimately back down. It's very symbolic that truth saves the day. It's less visceral than a super brawl. And I think uh, a key component of the core character that often gets overlooked. Mm-hmm, definitely. Now, what what did you think of Ares's plan? There's a really neat sequence where Demos presides over a meeting of extreme American patriots and convinces them to grab nuclear weapons and launch a war, matched by an identically laid out sequence where he does the same thing with a bunch of extreme Russian patriots. Yeah, that's cool. And like... Uh... He actually says the same words and stuff, but I mean, it right. says that one of them is in, is in Russian. But it's not it's not like he's giving each one like a tailored thing about like oh good old American values and you know oh the you know the the the, the communist ideal or whatever. He's saying the exact same thing. So the impression is that you know both sides are basically the same in this in this yep. conflict. So yeah, I I think it's good. I I think that it ties in with that this new Steve Trevor being you know, a, a, a fighting man or whatever you want to call him, but not a warmonger, right? That he's in, you know, late 80s gung-ho Cold War environment, but he is totally immune to Ares. And in fact, you know, one part of Ares's plan or is to get him, is to, you know, use him basically as a sacrificial pawn. So, yeah. Yeah, I I, I, I thought it was cool. Cool. Um, so we, we seem to do this every other episode, but how much of Watchmen do you think is involved here? Or or do you think it's just a parallel development, given that it is the 80s and nuclear war is on a, a lot of people's minds? I know it certainly yeah. was on mine as a small child. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I, it's something that I wish that we knew more about. It's always difficult to know, like, what kind of lead time was involved with Watchmen and Dark Knight Returns about, you know, is it people reading this when it comes out and then putting that back, but then there's a lot of lead time there. Or is it people coming into the DC office and seeing these pages as they're coming in? You know, we, it's, it's hard to know unless like we both quit our jobs and become full-time researchers to talk to that sort of thing. So like, that's, that's, you know, that's That's, just five years down the line, Justin, when we can justify having a Patreon uh, (laughs) subscriber subscription service, the five-year plan. Excellent. I look forward (laughs) (laughs) But yeah, you know, it's, it's, it's always hard to tell, but, um, 
the whole post-crisis, you know, project, whatever you want to call it, feels so politically reflective of its time in general, whether it's Justice League International and sort of all that dealing with the UN and stuff, or if it's Suicide Squad and that kind of thing, or, you know, Ronald Reagan showing up in Legends. Hmm. Um, and I don't know if that's like Watchmen and Dark Knight Returns being a direct influence, or if that's maybe just wanting like this new DC universe that they're creating out of crisis to be more grounded and reflecting the times and being less of a, you know, fantasy land, right? Yeah. But, and at the same time, like Superman 4, right? Which... <laughs> that classic. Nobody saw that coming, right? In this, in this discussion. <laughs> Superman 4, The Quest for, for Peace, a very underrated film in my opinion, but that's for another time. Uh, for you know, excellent but... reasons, is it underrated? <laughs> Appreciate it. Sidebar. All right. <laughs> but yeah. Superman 4 is also like about nuclear anxiety, you know, and I assume that like that has nothing to do at all with what's going on in the comics. I don't think that Christopher Reeve was necessarily sitting down with Dark Knight Returns or Watchmen or whatever. So maybe it is just like parallel development of superheroes and what's the biggest threat that you can have them face, you know, the the great existential threat of the late 80s, right? Mm, yeah. It's just something in the air, maybe. Yeah. Hopefully not nuclear fallout. <laughs> No. <laughs> Rough chuckles. <laughs> so moving on, but before we move on totally, right? Yes. Um, in our Man of Steel episode, we discussed whether John Byrne threw the baby out with the bathwater in de-emphasizing some of the more whimsical elements of the Superman legend. So in that vein, here is the big important question about a Wonder Woman relaunch. Uh -huh. Do you miss the invisible jet? <laughs> <laughs> I, I have i have to know we have to know because <laughs> it, it is it, it's i mean it's it's a surprising cut in a way because like the invisible jet used to be like one of five things that everybody knew about wonder woman right like <laughs> right right and it's gone yeah so i gotta say not really <laughs> <laughs> i'm not gonna pretend that i didn't enjoy its inclusion and in, and in wonder woman 84 but i I appreciate that Perez or Potter streamlined Dana just that little smidge. She doesn't need to ride on wind currents or whatever, <laughs> which is, you know, hard to do because hum the human shape is, is not very aerodynamic. Nor does she need to strap into a jet to go after flying bad guys. She can just take to the air herself. It, I think it simplifies things. Mm -hmm. And I think the jet, too, was a holdover from that military fiction aspect. and. Emphasizing the mythology over that just means it, it it had to go. Like she's a she's a fantasy character now. She can just fly. Boom, done. And um, we don't need um, we don't need to justify this jet or how it's invisible or how she can find it <laughs> or yeah, yeah. or how the Amazons built it when <laughs> they're have basically Iron Age technology. Yeah, as much as I like the the phrase invisible robot plane like as much as that's like, <laughs> so, uh, much as that like you know makes my heart sing or whatever yeah i i think it's probably a, a wise thing to cut down on but you know as with all the the fortress of solitude and the phantom zone criminals the, uh and and the superman mythos silver age stuff came back so too did the invisible jet eventually so mm -hmm. you know it just gives an opportunity to come up with a better reason for why that exists and and how it how it fits in yeah maybe it's because i wasn't as attached to the whole wonder woman background as i was to superman or batman but 
de-emphasizing that sort of stuff didn't bother me at all. Mm -hmm. So George Perez's Wonder Woman relaunch was a critical and financial success. Wonder Woman had never really been a big seller. I think DC largely kept her title in print in order to retain the rights and thus merchandising. (laughs) Yeah. T-shirts. Yeah, exactly. The first issue sold something in the range of 150,000 copies, which seems paltry compared to our X-Men or Spawn numbers. But in 1987, that essentially tripled Wandy's circulation at the time. And, And Perez was initially contracted for six issues. But that contract kept getting extended until after five years, he finally stepped away from the book. And arguably, Perez has had the greatest impact on the character since Marston. Mm-hmm. This is essentially the version that we get in all other media now, including the Justice League cartoon, the animated films, and even the Gal Gadot movies owe Perez a lot. Um, speaking of which, uh, Wonder Woman, the third most... Important character in the DC stable got a major motion picture in 2017, approximately two decades after Spawn did. (laughs) Which, um... Yeah. (laughs) Speaking of rough chuckles, uh, (laughs) reportedly, despite how different the first film is from this story arc, George Perez received a six-figure payment from the film, as opposed to Jim Starlin, who received... Uh, nothing for Infinity War. <laughs> we'll buy a popcorn at the premiere. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I think he eventually did get something. But um, this book proved you could sell Wonder Woman comics, but DC was still hesitant to see what else could be done with the character. Why do you think Wonder Woman was so hard to sell? Is this just a girl comic stigma? Does she fill too similar niche to Superman or something? You can maybe argue that this kind of mythological fantasy thing can be a harder sell for superhero fans than, you know, the sci-fi thing or the detective slash crime thing. I mean, like, personally, like Thor, right, is a character that I I don't have a real strong affinity for myself outside of the Simonson run. Which actually, that one kind of went all in on the fantasy more so than any other before or since. Yeah. And that's just just because that's such good, you know, comics right like that's <laughs> so you do like mythology as long as it's written well <laughs> yeah as, as as long as the mythology comes with the, the sound effect like crack a cthum <laughs> thrack a crack a doom yeah yeah then i'm down yes. for it <laughs> okay all right that's reasonable but yeah i mean absolutely like so much about the wonder woman situation stems from the fact that she is wonder woman Obviously, there are outright misogynistic readers out there who are going to deliberately not read Wonder Woman or whatever. But there's also that sort of less aggressive bias that, you know, you and I already owned up to when we were younger of just that kind of a superhero. You know, if you have Wonder Woman and Green Lantern next to each other and all things being equal, it's like, eh, I don't know, I'm maybe I'll do Green Lantern because I'm insecure and I, I'm terrible. <laughs> terrible, right? Yeah. Like, so, like, you yeah. know, that is there is that, right? And so, like, and if DC thinks that there isn't a market for Wonder Woman among comics readers, there's going to be less financial incentive to do more Wonder Woman comics. Agreed. And I I don't think DC or or any of its various parent companies has ever understood how best to market any of the properties under its control, at at least beyond Batman or Superman. And I even, I'm not always thrilled about how they market Superman either. Yeah, I know, right? (laughs) 
I think I think there is sort of a a institutional embarrassment about Superman, and maybe that also extends to Wonder Woman about like you can clearly like make a lot of money off of Superman and Wonder Woman merchandise, but you know I imagine there's somebody you know in, in corporate right who's like looking at the stuff going like oh man we Superman Wonder Woman <sighs> that's lame right so that's I mean like <laughs> uh, like and like obviously like DC Comics like people who are making the comics love Superman, love Wonder Woman, but I think sometimes they also get into like a sort of defensive mode, right? And that's why you get like a new Superman origin every couple of years because it's like, oh, we got to we got to rethink this from the ground up cuz people are not thinking Superman is cool, right? Oh yeah, or or Themyscira gets destroyed every 5 years, <laughs> right? Just something's got to be done to shake this up cuz people are people are yeah. laughing at our trademarks, right? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. But, but yeah. But even when, you know, DC has the best of intentions and really wants to commit to the character. Wonder Woman has this position as sort of the foremost female superhero. I mean, she was on, put on the cover of Ms. Magazine as, you know, a feminist, like she was claimed as a feminist icon, right? So like that means something, right? So I think that there is an intimidation factor, even when you want to do it well, that there isn't for most other superheroes or even even other female superheroes. She's definitely iconic in a way that even Superman is not. She represents feminine power in a way that, that Superman or the Hulk don't even represent masculine power. Yeah. So like, yeah, and when there's like a bad Superman and Hulk comic, you go, oh, there was a this is a bad issue with Superman and the Hulk. When there's a bad Wonder Woman comic, there's that sort of thing of like, oh, we really blew this opportunity, you know, to, yeah. to do, to do something here. <laughs> Cause like, you know, there's, there's how many Superman comics or how many Batman comics in a month. Yeah. There might only be one issue of Wonder Woman in a month sometimes. Yep. Although thankfully that has changed. I think the popularity of that 2017 film has shifted some things at DC. There, there actually are a lot of Wonder Woman books out at the moment. I do think that probably things are, are changing now for the for the better, but um, I think in this you know this Iron Age period, I think that things would probably have been less complex or intimidating if there were more great Wonder Woman runs in the first place to draw from in the past. Hmm. If there were more female heroes in general, where it was less emphasized, like you have to get this one right, right. And if there were more female creators working on the books at the time, and there are great Wonder Woman runs. I I like the Phil Jimenez run. Um, both Greg Rucka runs were great. I enjoyed G. Willow Wilson's take, but thought she left the book too early. And I hear really good things about Gail Simone's run, but that's another blind spot. And, uh, admittedly, these are all post Perez runs. <laughs> so right. maybe that yeah. is, yeah. Yeah. I liked, I liked, uh, Gail Simone's run. I liked, uh, I liked Alan Heinberg's like immediately post infinite crisis one a lot. Right. Like there's tons of stuff out there, but like, yeah, at, at this time when George Perez is doing Wonder Woman number one, not a lot to draw, to draw from. From yeah, uh, with the way that like you can just pull back into like a Silver Age Superman story and pick out something that you can work with. Maybe there's less to go on with uh, with Wonder Woman. She's she has a a lack of really great villains too. Like I mean, Batman has the market cornered on great villains, and Superman he's at least got Lex Luthor. And Wonder Woman's great villain is cheetah <laughs> so which i think is why aries got used in in this this run mm-hmm. um so we also mentioned earlier that that having one woman premiere in public in the present rather than 10 years ago caused some in universe difficulties 
So most obviously Donna Troy, a.k.a. Wonder Girl, was suddenly unmoored from her place in continuity. Donna was always a little tricky because the original Wonder Girl was Diana herself, and Donna was kind of invented post facto to fill a slot on the Teen Titans, you know, the slot of the girl. Um, but but with this new status quo, she was abandoned and, and left out on her own, necessitating the who is Donna Troy story in Teen Titans. And eventually she became Troya because of the Titans of Myth or something <laughs> he said high voice trailing off <laughs> <laughs> yeah i mean it's you know it's it's a bit like removing superboy from continuity right and then messing with the legion that like nobody thought about the implications of this ahead of time you know like i mean it's not even like donna troy is something that you would forget about you know when you're doing this it's like teen titans was like the dc book of the 80s right that george perez drew <laughs> right <laughs> like how, how did it not occur to him to be like oh right this oh yeah <laughs> <laughs> so yeah i don't know what went into that thinking or if there was again this is we make fun of the new 52 for being this sort of like haphazard <laughs> yeah but like that's always just that, that that's just how you do it right yeah when you do it dc style yeah and yeah and <laughs> consequently like every time that we have the dc continuity shuffle or even when we don't donna just gets a new origin every couple of years because somebody comes along and is like hey guys i got this one (laughs) everybody everybody else has done it wrong but i think that i'm the one this is like how they keep making sequels to the original halloween everybody comes along it's like it's like i got this everybody else is wrong (laughs) yep poor donna and yet she's she's got to be on the Titans because she's she's that classic character. Whenever again, whenever it wants to do the back to basics original Titans crew, she's got to be in there. Mm-hmm. Um, but also removing Wonder Woman from all those early Justice League stories meant a substitute had to be found there. So interestingly, Black Canary was picked to become a founding member of the Justice League, which thrusting her into a level of of prominence in the DC universe that she never had previously, but in my opinion, totally deserved. So there's actually a, a positive there. Mm-hmm. Even, even if trying to imagine a martial artist with a really loud shout filling in for the Amazon princess in those early Gardner Fox stories <laughs> is hard to do. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it does sort of point out like the lack of other prominent silver age superheroines that, you know, you can't do Hawkwoman because that aforementioned Hawkman problem, right? <laughs> you know, we'll get so, there. Like, it, we'll get there. We'll get there. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, so like, you know, Black Canary can seem like kind of a hasty substitution, but um, Mark Wade does find something to do with it later on when he and Brian Augustine do JLA year one. Uh, years later, which I a series that I really enjoyed as it was coming out. Yeah, me too. And she becomes sort of like this, um, like this link between like the modern generation or this what we think of outside of the universe of the Silver Age and the Golden Age. So she is like in the series, like everything that she does on the team is like, well, you know, you know how Starman would have done it, or you know, yeah, yeah, you know, so like you know how Our Man would have done, right? So like I I, <laughs> I enjoyed that, right? And it and it yeah. makes sense like story wise. It's it was a great characterization of her because and. Again, she's like a character created to solve a problem because she's like her own daughter, <laughs> conceptually. Because <laughs> like Black Canary is a Golden Age character who ended up crossing over from the JSA world to the JLA world, Earth One. 
and then becoming a regular co-star of the, the Green Arrow Green Lantern book. And um, and then they kind of had to, when they merged the universes, kind of had to account for that. So it's a very interesting character. I think we'll have to do a Black Canary episode at some point, even though she... Well, we got Birds of Prey to look forward to someday, so maybe Ooh, we'll yeah. get to it there. But wrapping up Wonder Woman, who <laughs> is actually our topic of conversation today, not Black Canary. Um, I got excited. I know. <laughs> I love her so much. Um, where do we stand on this first arc of the George Perez Wonder Woman? I, I got to say, I really liked it. The first issue has an indelible impact, and there's a, there's a bit of a dip at first, and just in the story momentum, but... The back half is pretty much full-on action. There's a lot of prologue, but my understanding is that it all pays off eventually, as in Man of Steel, where Burns seeded story elements he'll pick up later during the regular run. Perez does the, the very same thing. And again, it's an extraordinarily pretty book. You can enjoy it just for the art, in all honesty, but you can't always say for a comic book. <laughs> yeah, I, I like this a lot. And I'm genuinely curious and interested to read more of Perez's run. So I definitely think that a uh, an episode on the next arc, which is in this trade, it's promised that it's Challenge of the Gods. Yes, is something that we should do in the future. I'm, I'm adding it to the spreadsheet as we. As we All right, as we, awesome. Cool. As we speak, um, but yeah, the, the so the main plot of this arc is fine adventure stuff. Um, but what I'm really interested in is the status quo that's set up by the end of this and the supporting characters that are introduced. So yep. you have Diana is posited as sort of this um, like celebrity figure, you know, like she's going, she's like going on talk shows to talk about her mission of peace. Right. And that's, you know, you assume that like Superman does like charity stuff, but like he doesn't necessarily go on Johnny Carson or whatever, what I, <laughs> right at the time or go on Joan Rivers or whatever. Yeah. Um, so, yeah. I, and then she's uh, set up to have this sort of like, her you know business side is being run by an agent or manager named Mindy Mayer, who seems a little unscrupulous, and that seems like a you know sort of a fun setup to how much can you sort of sell out or be commercialized and still get your your point across. So that seems like an interesting thing that that's headed towards. Yeah, somebody who has the the lasso of truth and is like an honest and forthright person dealing with a very 1980s businesswoman, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> with all that that involves. Yeah. Um, and then you have, I'm looking, uh, looking forward to see how Steve Trevor develops and how that plays out now that like this whole series, you know, is like set up as this guy who is very unpopular with the military to begin with because of his whistleblowing in the past, he was framed for some crimes and now he's cleared, but like, how does that affect his character? I'm interested to see how that plays out. Um, the Capitellas family, uh, seemed pretty cool. The Julia, the mother is portrayed as a very active participant in this and i'm curious to see where that is going to go yeah i I was surprised she grabbed a gun and and ran towards the danger that was i was not expecting that (laughs) yeah i mean that's something that happens you know like the male academic right in a lot of movies and stuff sometimes gets sort of gets that like called up to be like oh i don't you know know how to use a gun but I'll, i'll try right but you don't see that with the female academic as much in this kind of like adventure story so that was yeah that was cool um, and I want to know how that gun got onto Themyscira in the, in the first place. So yeah, that's I've I've read my um, my Wonder Woman encyclopedia by Phil Jimenez 
for the 75th anniversary cover to cover. So I actually know a lot of this stuff already, <laughs> even though I haven't actually read the actual comics, which is a crime. But um, that is part of that payoff I just alluded to. And it all ties into why Diana wears red, white, and blue and the American Eagle as well. So right. stuff to look forward to. Yeah. But like this, this is a success, right? As a, as a relaunch, like this is exactly what you want your reboot to do is to have people come in and go like, I'm like, this is a good story, but also like, I am hungry for more. Like I'm actually, you know, yeah, this is like this, that's, that's what you want to happen. And like, this is a total success by any uh, metric that way. Creative and financially. Yes. Which are, you know, how we measure these sorts of things. (laughs) Sadly, one more than the other, but yeah, I, I absolutely agree. It was a, it was a good book. Mm -hmm. I want more. So we talked a little bit about Wonder Woman making the jump to a Hollywood movie. But Jim, what if I told you about a reverse situation uh-huh. where someone from the world of movies uh-huh. made the jump to comics? Huh. <laughs> okay. okay. Imagine if you can, right? I'll try. <laughs> a, f- a film director and a screenwriter, a man who has shaken Ben Affleck's very hand, <laughs> deigning to turn his attention to our disreputable little medium. Why, he would be like unto one of Wonder Woman's gods of Olympus himself, <laughs> descending to the mortal plane of the comics industry to grace us with his very presence. Um, I'm talking about Kevin Smith. <laughs> and and his eight-issue run on Daredevil with Joe Quesada and Jimmy Palmiotti, which we'll be covering on our next episode. Oy vey. <laughs> I sense a lack of enthusiasm. No, no, we're no, to, no. We're going to get to the bottom of this. Yes, yes, that will we be, will. <laughs> that will be in two weeks' time. Uh, until then, you can email us at ironagecomicspodcast at gmail.com. Follow us on Twitter and Instagram at Iron Age of Comics. Please consider rating and reviewing on Apple Podcasts. That's uh, We're an independent podcast, so that uh, moves the needle in the uh, algorithms and... Um, future technology stuff that I do not understand, but we have actually a review today. I'm going to read out one from a Mr. S Del Monte, mm-hmm. um, somebody who if I am correct in assuming who I think this is a, someone whose letters you might have seen in a letter page uh, from this era. I will read the review now. Pages like it's, <laughs> it's pages. <laughs> it begins fun, smart, trenchant. I like that. A bravura examination of the 15 years that remade comics into the vibrant and bloated entertainment industry that it is today from two fans who know their stuff and aren't afraid to say the truth about Jim Shooter. <laughs> it's very, very true. They, uh, Warriors of Plasm deserved better. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, S. Del Monte. That's very kind. Yes. Thank you so much. Thank you for supporting the show and consider sharing our show with the comics reading people in your life, online and off, and everywhere in between. <laughs> As always, thank you for listening. And for the Iron Age of Comics, I have been Justin Zyduck. I have been Jim Cannon. And have a good night. Good night, everybody. <laughs> <laughs>